Welcome to another episode of the Tom Schumer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. I hope everyone had a great weekend. Thanks again for listening in this week. And as I always say, a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. This is, of course, episode 47. And so we are fast approaching episode 50. Next week, I'm going to announce a bit of a fun contest to find a way to celebrate reaching 50 episodes because, well, 50 is a nice round number. And I want to find a way to also celebrate you, the listeners. I'm going to open with that announcement next week. And what I do know is it will be a two-week contest, and I'll announce the winner on episode 50. So if you usually don't listen to the podcast until later in the week, during most weeks, you'll probably want to listen to it next week on Monday, at least just to get the details so you have the full two weeks to participate. Look, you may or may not choose to participate, and that, of course, is fine. But you should know the parameters and then decide from there. So my recommendation is make sure you listen to next week's episode on Monday so you have the full two weeks to decide whether or not you want to participate in the fun little contest to celebrate episode 50. Now, of course, as I always say, you're listening and following the podcast is greatly appreciated. And if you really enjoy the podcast, I'd love for you to spread the word on social media or maybe with your friends or your colleagues. Today, my guest is Dr. Doug Reeves. Doug will be my guest for the next two episodes. In part one today, we explore creativity and innovation and how we can bring both of those to the forefront of a 21st century K-12 educational experience. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to bring you some highlights from a handbook chapter that I recently read by Gordon Stobart that focuses on why it's important to tailor our feedback to where learners are along their own learning continuums. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. Part one of my interview with Doug Reeves is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with the idea that the risk is the reward. Now, in some ways, this is a bit of an extension from last week's opener, where I talked about the fear of regret, but I want to tie it back to students uh, this week. Too often, the judgment of whether a risk was worth it or not is done retroactively. If the risk worked out, then of course it was worth it. And if it didn't work out, then it wasn't worth it, right? You know the cliche, hindsight is twenty twenty. Well, of course it's twenty twenty because you see the results, then it's easy to judge the worthiness of the risk in the first place. We see this a lot, of course, in professional sports, where especially when it comes to trades, Right, Two teams make a trade, and of course, each fan base has a reaction. A year or two later, let's imagine the two players' careers go in an opposite direction. One of the players becomes a superstar, and the other is on the downside of their career or even out of the league. Well, those trades are easy to judge, of course, years later. But the real question is, what were people saying at the time? It's easy to look back, like I said, and judge that trade years later, but it should only be judged in the now, really. You know, all of your grand observations and analyses, like where was that two years ago? I go through this a little bit with fantasy football. Of course, this year I haven't been giving too many updates on my fantasy season, uh, mostly because my team is terrible, um, but also because of the odd recording times uh, due to my travel schedule and how I sort of am producing the podcast, it makes real-time updates a little bit more challenging. Okay, years ago, there was a trade involving two players in my fantasy football league. One was Eddie Lacy, who at the time was a veteran, and the other was Ezekiel Elliott, who at the time was a rookie coming into the NFL, or I think he just played maybe one year. I think he was a rookie. 
So Lacey was a veteran, as I said, and he was a beast for the Green Bay Packers. Uh, Elliott was a great college player at Ohio State, but still a slightly unproven uh, NFL player. That trade is easy to judge now, uh, because and, it, and honestly, it's often referenced in my league, because believe me, as the commissioner of my league and the one who approves trades, I hear about it often, okay? We need to judge the worthiness of a risk in the moment, not retroactively. Sure, it was a risk for, you know, that one franchise to trade uh, Eddie Lacy for Ezekiel Elliott and in reverse, but at the time that that trade was made, no one was outraged, all right? Sure, the, you know, look, there were some people that had differences of opinion about that trade, but at the time the trade was, on paper, the trade was fair. Now, retroactively, that trade was a fleecing, you know, but you're playing the results. You know, if you're playing the results years after, there's nothing more classic sports fandom than, than playing the results. Everyone running sports teams knows nothing. Everyone who's a fan could definitely do a better job, right? Cue the eye roll, hashtag sarcasm. Now, here's a newsflash. Get ready for this. Some risks don't work out. Now, I know that's groundbreaking, cutting-edge analysis for some. <laughs> but, but seriously, not every risk is going to work out exactly how we want it to. The risk is the reward. By taking a risk, you're doing a couple of things. First, you're betting on yourself. Right? You believe that some professional or personal aspect of your life that's not guaranteed, is within your sphere of control. You know, that there is a risk, but that you think you can do it. And two, you're creating an experience that is going to make you better. You, you're either going to succeed or you're going to learn. And I love that expression, right? You're never failing. You're either succeeding or you're learning. Now, if someone were to ask me, you know, about the meaning of life or what life is all about, and look, that's a big question. But if somebody were to ask me that question, the word that always comes to mind is experiences. Life, for me, is about creating a breadth and depth of experiences. And often, those experiences come from risk-taking. We take a chance, right? We take a chance on something, or we take a chance on ourselves. I feel like we need to bring more of this to our classrooms. We need to create learning environments, and look, some of you probably already do, but we need to create learning environments where risk-taking is the reward, so to speak, that we at times put less of our focus on the outcome and more of our focus on the process, the risk-taking, right? Of course, results matter, ultimately. We're after this idea that students learn. So it's not as though we're going to say to a student, well... At least you took the risk learning to read. It's too bad it didn't work out. But uh, look at the experiences you created for yourself. That, that's so not what I'm talking about here. We understand that results do matter at times. But a risk may be, for example, a proposal or a potential solution that a student hypothesizes after an inquiry project or an investigatory process. It's, it's something that they think about maybe a plausible solution. You know, that proposal or solution may turn out to be erroneous, but the reward is in the risk-taking, in the decision-making. I mean, the easy way out in any situation is to not decide or not make any assertion at all. As I said last week, playing it safe also has consequences. And again, we're talking about thoughtful risk here. We're not talking about life-and-death situations or thoughtless risks. Right? And I feel like most of you would understand that, but it feels like, especially in 2021, 
that we have to qualify everything we say. Otherwise, there's always somebody who's going to say, so are you saying, Tom, that my reward would be financial ruin? Uh, no, that's, that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I think everybody understands that. It just makes me feel better to say it. If we're going to cultivate learning environments where students see risk-taking as the goal, then we're going to have to raise the profile of risk-taking and give it our attention. Remember, and, and some of you have heard me say this dozens of times, what adults give their attention to is what children, teens, students, etc. will come to believe is important. If we're always playing the results, if we're always giving our attention to outcome, then you're going to, inadvertently or in, intentionally, you're going to develop a cohort of learners who are risk-averse. We have to give risk-taking a disproportionate amount of our attention at times by focusing not on the outcome, but on the process and highlighting that process through reflective opportunities. We, of course, can use the outcome as a springboard for the reflection, but we're really focused on the risk-taking and the process. The reward of risk-taking is the ability to learn when things don't work out. No risk, there's no learning opportunity, there's no growth opportunity. Again, we can use the results to steer the reflection process. You know, things didn't work out. Okay, so what? Let's learn from it. So how do we learn from it? Well, we may, for example, ask our students to reflect on something like this. Now that you see that things didn't work out, is there any aspect of your preparation that you would do differently? Or you could ask them something, for example, was there something you anticipated being a minor issue that you now realize was actually quite significant? Or you could ask them, knowing what you know now, if someone else were facing this decision, what's one piece of advice you would give them? Again, learning from things that didn't work out, learning from our mistakes. The easy part is saying, hey, let's learn from our mistakes. The more challenging part is to create an atmosphere where those words are actually supported by our actions, that we engineer opportunities for deeper learning to occur from what didn't work. It's, it's not just about the quick correction. And I know this is going to sound subtle, but our learning from mistakes exercises aren't just about quickly getting it right. Sure, that's part of it. But part of it is also marinating in our wrong to examine both what I could have done differently or even examine myself as a learner to uncover my own strengths and areas for growth, like to learn more about me. Did the failed risk, for example, tell me something about me as a risk taker? Is there something I can take from that and grow? Having the courage to risk is the reward in and of itself. Having the courage to go for it, not knowing what the results might be, is for me the epitome of living. So ask yourself this in your role right now. How much do you reward risk-taking and how much do you play the results? You know, classroom teachers, for example. Do you just talk a good game when it comes to risk-taking or do you really give it the attention it deserves in your classroom and support that with your students? Administrators, do you talk a good game about risk-taking or is there an environment where teachers are supported in taking calculated risks with instruction or assessment, you know, doing things that aren't the norm, but pushing the boundaries of, of what's possible for us uh, in the classroom? Superintendents, do you support the idea of risk-taking with school principals? Do you support that atmosphere where taking a risk and pushing the boundaries, again, of what's plausible and what's possible and how we can create different environments for schools? Do we talk a good game? 
do we only talk a good game in the abstract or do we actually put our money where our mouths are when it comes to risk taking? So look, whether on a large scale or a much smaller one, taking risks, right? Acting when the outcome is truly uncertain is what we need to celebrate in our learners and give a good amount of our attention to, right? So that as they grow, our learners will become more courageous in their pursuit of the richest, fullest experiences, whether those experiences be in school or whether those experiences be in life itself. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcast. Now let's get back to the episode. Joining me today for the interview is Dr. Douglas Reeves. Doug is the author of more than 40 books and more than 100 articles on leadership and education. He has twice been named to the Harvard University Distinguished Authors Series and was named the Brock International Laureate for his contributions to education. Honestly, if you've been in education uh, and you don't know who Doug Reeves, I'm, I'm not really sure what you have been doing. We could spend an entire podcast on just the accomplishments alone. Doug has been a major influence on generations of educators quite literally around the world. So Doug, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Well, thanks so much. It's uh, delightful to be with you. Great. Thanks for doing this, Doug. I really appreciate it. Uh, you have had, of course, an illustrious career and have been such a massive influence on several generations of educators. And so we, of course, could take this conversation in a number of different directions, and, and we will go in a few. Uh, but I want to begin with a topic that I know you're paying close attention to, and that is the topic of creativity and innovation. I think that you know, many educators, maybe even most, would agree that creativity and innovation are critical 21st century competencies, and yet we still don't see creativity and innovation as ubiquitous key drivers of a 21st century learning experience in school. We see it in pockets, of course, no doubt, but, but not everywhere. So how do we make this happen? How do we create a level of urgency within school or district or even state and provincial leaders? How do we create that urgency, those who are responsible for those decisions? How do we make the case that creativity and innovation need to be key critical outcomes of a 21st century education? Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to this critical topic. And it's not just critical for educators. You know, the, the Global 1500 a CEO Forum had creativity at the top, ahead of quantitative analysis, ahead of uh, communication, ahead of a lot of things that people think that they go to CEO school to learn. Creativity is still what they want. And so it is important to us as educators. The problem is not just valuing it. The problem is that there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what creativity is all about and how to achieve it. And, and let me just illustrate with a couple of examples that uh, the research that was in the book, The Myth of the Muse, uh, articulates. One is that a lot of people think, well, creativity, it's, it's this kind of lone genius out creating things, just leave them alone, and then a miracle happens. And the truth is, the vast majority of creativity happens in teams, not individual enterprises. Uh, the fact that we recognize, for example, people as Nobel Prize winners um, has a lot more to do with the fact that, for example, in science, we don't recognize uh, half the people who did the work. We call them women, and uh, a lot of that was, was unrecognized. Uh, similarly, uh, there's, there's this appetite for the lone genius when, in fact, a lot of accomplishments are, are done by teams. Even in our field, Tom, when, when you think of a super paper, that is the research that is cited more than a thousand times in education, it's far six times more likely to be done by teams than by individuals. Um, and so that's one reason I think, you know, we, we have reference sections in the books that we write to really honor uh, the fact that, that no, no one of us alone is inventing these ideas, but it's the product of teamwork. And the second big misunderstanding um, that you see in schools a lot is that they think creativity is drawing 
outside the lines, think outside the box. Howard Gardner and I did this uh, deal at the, at the public library in Boston a number of years ago, and he had this great line that I love to quote. Uh, and Professor Gardner says, you can't think outside the box until you first understand the box. So, so the idea that it's, it's all just squishy and undefined and unregulated is simply untrue. Creativity requires structure. Creativity requires feedback and evaluation. And a lot of people don't get that those are essential elements of, of the creative process. So you make me think of uh, often when I talk about creativity as well, I think about songwriting and, uh, you know, nothing is more creative than writing a song. And yet there is structure and discipline to the, to what a song has. It's a chorus. There's a verse. There's a bridge. There's so much so much structure and discipline to that. And I love that quote as well. To, to think outside the box, you have to understand there has to be a box. Um, so how do we make this? How do we create the urgency? Is it is it that we create some of that urgency within leaders by helping them understand that it's more attainable, that it's not just the idea of creating something that is aesthetically pleasing, but it's, but it's this idea of how we think. It's creative thinking and, and the process of being creative. Is that, is that the way we create the urgency within leaders to try to move the needle as far as this being a priority? I, I really appreciate your, your use of the word process because that's what it is. I think this, this burst of genius is simply not what happens in the creative process, whether it's in music or whether it's in art or science or anything else. Uh, one of the gravest misunderstandings you see in education is that in the real world, you got to get it right the first time, which is not at all what the real world is. The real world is the process of trying, getting feedback, improving it, getting feedback, improving it. And so when I hear people assert in education that we have to get that paper right the first time, we've got to get that. That's, that's like saying Mozart had to get it right the first time. They don't. It's a process of iteration. Um, and, and that's true in every creative endeavor. And my plea to teachers is to frankly, get more respect for the feedback that they provide by having a process, as you said, of always, always making student work iterative, responding to feedback with resubmission, 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 and burying this nonsense that you got to get it right the first time. Nobody does. Yeah, there's so much opportunity for revision, refinement, practice in the world. Now, of course, when it comes to uh, creativity, the elephant in the room is often, and I know you hear this, I hear this too, is the topic of assessment. And of course, my favorite topic. Uh, you know, some would say that you can't assess creativity. I am of the mindset that you can and should assess creativity, especially if we're going to make the assertion that, the, that we are developing this within our students. And I know you agree with that, but my question is how? When you think about uh, assessing creativity and innovation in schools, how do you advise teachers or schools to assess creativity and innovation without potentially and inadvertently stifling someone's desire to be creative and, and to think outside that box, if you will? Well, there's two separate levels of assessment. One is, is assessing the result of creativity, and that I admit is tricky and reasonable people can differ. Look at, look at, uh, at the Paris exhibition of 1860 where the Impressionists led by Monet broke through. You know, that wasn't a unanimous verdict. There were, they literally had to go to a separate building uh, to display uh, what, what now we would regard as classic impressionist art. So creativity is not always immediately recognized. The same is true in music. I just heard a, two world premieres on Saturday night of 21st century music, which were glorious and were wonderful. But I've also listened to 21st century music that doesn't meet those ca categories. So I understand <laughs> assessing the result of creativity can lead to controversy. However, unambiguously what we can do is assess the process of creativity. And that's, you know, in, in the myth of the muse, I, I had this, this eight point rubric that we can use from every classroom. For example, if, 
if we have a classroom activity that is works independently, one shot and you're done, gets it right the first time, which sounds really good, but it is the antithesis of creativity. When in fact, we want people to work as a team, we want them to collaborate, and we want them to go through iterative, iterative processes of getting feedback. So, so on the rubric there, we can be very clear and specific in assessing the creative process, even when we might disagree on the creative result. Yeah, it seems to me that that so many uh, that that would bring such a breadth of of applicability to so many different subjects because it's still about creative thinking and it's about the process of being creative or thinking creatively, and that way we sort of join together so many subjects that might be seen as separate silos. They m might not seem connected, and yet we can teach a kind of universal uh, process of being creative. W would that be the way you would approach that with schools to try to bring people together to say this is the way that we teach? The, the students and help them create opportunities for them to think creatively and be innovative? Absolutely, Tom. In, in fact, I, I think the, the premise of the question about multidisciplinary approaches is a great way to illustrate the point that uh, creativity is not simply something that happens in the arts. And let me illustrate with an example. I'm a math teacher and, and a lot of people think that, well, gee, math and science, you know, just, just the facts, Jack, you don't have to be creative there. If that were true, of course, we would never have the technology revolution that we have right now. But but I'll, I'll just illustrate with an example of a wonderful math, science, social studies, multidisciplinary assessment that I saw that starts with two simple data sets. And one is on the x-axis, if you will, uh, the years from 200 years ago to now, and on the horizontal axis, temperature, ambient temperature, ocean temperature, and so on. Well, mm -hmm. if, if it's just a math problem or just a science problem, it's a pretty straightforward issue. But if you're asked to look at those two data points and ponder the question, is global warming real or not? Because there are powerful advocates on both sides of that where they're looking at the very same set of data and yet can draw different conclusions. That to me is the essence of using your idea of multidisciplinary approaches to really get to creative understandings. Uh, and that, that involves a lot of mathematical and scientific rigor, but also creatively uh, looking at what seems like a plain data set and coming to real world and pretty drastically different conclusions. Is it that, what is stopping, what do you think is stopping teachers or leaders from, from I guess, for lack of a more sophisticated term, pushing creativity and innovation to the forefront of the experience? Is it is it that lack of understanding of what it truly is? Do, is it that very narrow definition of aesthetics or, is it something else? Is there something else at play when you think about what's stopping us from, from pushing creativity and innovation to the forefront of our, our agenda? I, I think there's two things. And I'm not judgmental about teachers at all. No, we of all course. are hard and trying to do our, do our best work. But I think there are two things. One is a, is a misunderstanding of the creative process. And, and that is the myth of the lone genius, the myth of the inspirational muse who, who works alone and, and gets it right the first time. Um, and, and the myth of the, of the burst, the, the eureka moment. Um, you know, I like to say, you know, Archimedes is famous for running through the streets of Athens after his bath in which he discovered uh, the displacement effect, shouting eureka. But what I tell people is I'm pretty sure that was not Archimedes' first bath. He took a lot of baths before he ran through the streets of, of, <laughs> of Athens naked yelling, yelling eureka. And the same is true with, with other processes. It's certainly, you know, something maybe, you know, it also makes me think that maybe teachers 
don't necessarily experience creativity and innovation in their own profession. Because I've often thought that one of the ways that teachers could best prepare themselves for the teaching of creativity and innovation is to kind of experience it firsthand. And, and yet, despite creative pockets in our profession, we often see that creativity and innovation are often very slow to take hold in, in education. So what do you think it's going to take, if we think about it from that angle, what do you think it would take to create a habit of professional creativity and innovation within the teaching profession? You know, how do we create a professional atmosphere where creativity and innovation are the default disposition of teachers and administrators? How do we create those opportunities for our own professional growth? Well, I would be super practical about this because I do think that there's a way of, of making that happen. And one is a decision-making process, both in the classroom and in the boardroom, uh, called mutually exclusive decision alternatives. Too often what happens is, you know, we'll meet, let's say, for a curriculum uh, selection, or it might be a technology selection, or it might be choosing the next superintendent. And we do all of our research, and then we go to the decision maker and says, Here, here's the best choice, take it or leave it. When a much more rational approach that would lead to the divergent thinking on which creativity depends would be to say, here's two or three different alternatives. You can't choose them all. Eat, none of them are perfect, but each has advantages and disadvantages. That kind of decision-making approach, whether it's to curriculum, whether it's to pedagogical techniques or to leadership decision-making, would, would force us to really recognize and compare different alternatives rather than this, this illusion that there's one perfect decision, whether it's in the classroom or the superintendent's office. Yeah, maybe the nature of educators themselves who are planners and, and definitely like to get it right. And, and you're, you're right about our own expertise. We, we, you know, in, in the eyes of the students, we don't want to show sort of mistakes or we don't want to necessarily show uh, that we, we, we don't know or that we're uncertain. And yet part of being creative and innovative is that trial and error. It's the practice and error. And I think teachers becoming more comfortable with the idea of Again, we're not we're not talking about egregious errors. We're not talking about you know doing harm, but we are talking about the fact that refinement in our profession uh, it does take practice and it does take opportunity and it does take refinement and it takes a, a willingness to to step outside of that. Uh, other thoughts around how how might administrators create that atmosphere within the schools? Well, I'm I'm smiling because you're reminding me of of my friend Dr. Mike Wasta, uh, who as a superintendent would regularly send out oops grams. Uh, you okay. talked about we got to make it uh, safe to make a mistake. Well, when the yeah. superintendent is regularly saying, here's my three biggest bloopers of the last month, and here's how we can all learn from it, then that makes principals and teachers and ultimately students a lot more fearless in making those mistakes. And in my most recent book, Fearless Schools, it's yeah. all about psychological safety. Can you make mm -hmm. a mistake? And, and Tom, I think you've, you've hit on a, an incredibly important issue here. Uh, when it comes to the, the nuts and bolts of classroom observation. If you're my principal and you're coming to watch my classroom, my, my impulse will be batten down the hatches. Everything's going to be perfect. I'm only going to call on kids who've got the right answer because I want to show off for my principal. Right. But that is the opposite of a learning environment. A learning envi environment, as you suggested, requires mistakes, requires a level of psychological safety and fearlessness in both the teacher making mistakes and students making mistakes joyously, fearlessly, that's how we learn. But I, I fear too often we, we think engagement is all about showing off and having a perfectly rehearsed presentation for you rather than the environment in which real learning happens. And that involves mistakes. Yeah, we still may be in a place where in the abstract, we, we proclaim that it's OK to be wrong. It's OK to make mistakes. It's OK to 
to refine. And yet when push comes to shove, when you have a teacher being observed by the principal or there's some sort of you know performance appraisal happening, there is still this attempt or this illusion that we have to be perfect and that this is the most, you know, the three most epic lesson plans I've ever created in my life are going to be on display for my principal to show. And it's really a, a bit of a dance and a performance and a game that I, I think we just need to break down and, and, and try to go in a different direction and really celebrate the, 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 the professional errors that we make. Cause I always say to teachers, you know, the, the errors that you're going to make teachers make good decisions on behalf of their students by default you know, again, there's always exceptions to the rule out there, but the vast majority of teachers, even if they get it wrong, it's going to be a good experience for their students. And refining that means it's only going to be better the next time. It's only going to be more, you know, engaging or empowering to, to your learners going forward. So I guess it just for me, I'm just trying to, you know, encourage teachers to, to let their guard down a little bit. But again, the system, even outside in society, doesn't support that, does it? The, the way that we view teachers in that lens. Right. I mean, Kim Marshall makes a very persuasive case that lots of, of spontaneous, tiny observations are way better than the typical dog and pony show where it's all planned, it's all rehearsed, there's a pre-observation conference, and it's just a contrivance. It's set up to be the opposite of creativity, the opposite of learning, the opposite of risk-taking. It's just a show. And I'll tell you, a lot of money and time is spent on evaluation and feedback systems in education that aren't really producing much in the way, not just of creativity, they're not producing much in the way of good learning and teaching anyway. Yeah, it's interesting too, that no matter, you know, when you think about how assessment in schools, our assessment practices, even our grading practices have evolved, um, teacher evaluation, teacher performance appraisals really don't reflect, you know, the kinds of assessment practices we would encourage teachers to use with their students. They more and more have become disjointed uh, from from the experience that teachers have with principals or principals have with superintendents. Uh, it's looking more and more different uh, in terms of the assessment context, for sure. You know, uh, Doug, as we, we think about the broaden out the lens here a little bit, you, of course, have been uh, so right and on point with so many aspects of education throughout your career. Uh, many times you, of course, have been ahead of the curve on, on so many aspects of education. And, and you know, we've, we've all benefited from your expertise. But to turn that question a little bit on its side, I'm wondering, as you reflect on your career, uh, was there any aspect of the evolution of K-12 education that you either underestimated or maybe even were wrong about? Oh, yeah, I've, I've been wrong on tons of things. And, and I would just add as a kind of a consumer alert for your uh, viewers <laughs> that, that uh, when, when a researcher is always conveniently right, always is able to find a data set to support his or her conclusions, beware, guard your wallet. Uh, okay. You know, real researchers make mistakes all the time. And let me just illustrate with a couple of examples. Okay. Um, one of the things that I've worked on a lot, and I'm still working on a new project now, is, is implementation. Uh, lots of good ideas out there, but poorly implemented, they mean nothing. And so originally, I, I had this hypothesis that, that as implementation gets better, and I had articulated four levels, level one, two, three, four, then student achievement would get better. Seemed reasonable to me because everybody had talked about fidelity, everybody talked about implementation. Right. But when I actually tested it out, I was dead wrong about the linear progress of level one, two, three, and four. What it was, in fact, was level one to two, nothing happened. Level two to three, no results. Level three to four, giant increases in results. 
But one of the biggest things I learned in the process of being wrong about this linear nature, it wasn't one, two, three, four, but one, two, three were level and then four. What I learned is that that's why a lot of change implementation never happens. Because after level two and level three, people say, well, shoot, that didn't work. Let's buy a new program. And they get to level one, two, three. Well, that one didn't work either. Let's buy something new. So I, I, I learned as a result of being wrong in my projection about uh, linearity. Um, I mean, certainly when it comes to, to grading, I, I thought uh, they'll read books from you and books from me about, <laughs> about how to have good grading practices. And then, and then a miracle happens. And of course, yeah. you know, you, you've seen the folly of that where everybody says, well, gee, you know, if, the, if we have the same uh, parents and attendance and behavior and quizzes and homework and finals and everything's the same, then a rational process would have the same grade. But with more than 10,000 teachers and administrators, I found that the very same work by the very same kid could have an A, B, C, D, or F. And it's as bad today as it was 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, the, the lesson there is it, is it merely, you know, writing books and having good logic behind it isn't enough to change deeply ingrained toxic practices. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it definitely is with grading. Uh, it, it is surprising to me that in 2021, the concept of sound grading practices or, <clears throat> you know, the, the sound assessment practices are still uh, struggling to take hold in some places. Uh, yeah, it's always awkward to ask somebody, where were you wrong? But I know I agree with you. We've, we all are wrong. And, and that's part of how we grow professionally. It's interesting. So from that linear thought versus is it more the idea that we lay a foundation that steps sort of what level one, level two, and, and moving to level three are that foundational piece that put you on the verge of these explosive successes? Is that what you discovered in that, in that process? Yeah, I, I think the real, I mean, it, it goes along with some other research too, that, that number one, I can't have deep implementation of more than a few things. And you look mm -hmm. at most school plans right now, we're broadcasting in the year 2021, when in the US, a lot of federal funds are coming to, um, to schools as a result of CARES funding. But we've seen this rodeo before. Back in Race to the Top days of in 2009, 2010, they get flooded with money. They buy 20 different programs, implement none of them. And then two or three years later, they say, well, gee, I guess, you know, all that money for education didn't work. So, yeah. so one of the things that I learned is focus. You've got to focus on a few things if you're going to get to implementation. And the second, and this is truly controversial, but it's in another book called A Deep Change Leadership. Uh, I think the idea that you got to get buy-in is just a myth. If you wait for buy-in, we'll be having the conversations, not just on grading, but on any other innovation 20 years, 50 years from now. So what I learned is, to finally get to your question of laying that foundation, you don't wait for everybody to agree. You get to level four, you implement it deeply, you observe the results, and then when people see the results, you ask for buy-in. Because right. if, if you spend all your time planning and thinking and cajoling and pleading, nothing ever happens. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it, you have to almost as long as you have a critical mass, of course, you can you can move forward and and you begin to push that agenda. I, I totally agree with that. I think there's a point where you have to show the results and, and show the why. Definitely. OK, we've got two more questions as we finish up here with part one uh, of of our conversation. You uh, the first one is uh, you, of course, as I've mentioned several times, you've inspired generations of educators. But I'm curious about two things, Doug. Uh, who inspired you in your early days and who continues to inspire you today? Well, like uh, almost everyone in our profession, I was inspired by, by great teachers. And I was so lucky to have both teachers and, and uh, leaders who 
uh, who had a profound influence on me. My, you know, I had coaches who were, were great, both inside and outside of, of school, uh, teachers who demanded excellence. Um, my, my mother, uh, uh, who will turn 99 this year, kept all of my old report cards and in cleaning the house, sent some to me, including one in very large letters in sixth grade that says, does not work up to his potential. So <laughs> I, I, I was inspired, even though I didn't particularly appreciate it at the time, uh, by teachers who had high demands of me. Uh, also, you know, my own parents clearly were, were major roles. My, um, um, my mother, although never paid for it, was a teacher throughout her life, uh, my father as well. Um, mm -hmm. my, my grandmother uh, was the first woman superintendent of schools in the state of Illinois. Yeah. So I come from a long lineage of, of educators and leaders who, who take the profession seriously. Um, and, and still today, you know, I, I mentioned Howard Gardner earlier, who, who continues to be uh, an in inspiration. Uh, so thoughtful, self-effacing, um, a person who, um, who doesn't claim that he has all the answers and bristles when people act like multiple intelligences settled science when here the guy who coined the phrase is still working on it and still trying to uh, pursue it. Obviously, Rick and Becky DeFore, huge inspirations to me um, mm -hmm. as well. And, um, and I would say in, in my conversations, you know, John Hattie, I think, is the, the foremost researcher of our time. Got an email from him, him this morning and collaborating on a project. I am full of, of inspiration for people like that. But Tom, I'll tell you, you know, the big names that we all recognize are there. But a week ago, I was in a California middle school having lunch with the kids who hadn't been in school for 18 months who to read the newspaper accounts were raised by wolves and don't know how to sit down and don't know how to act and are sitting having lunch with a perfect stranger in the cafeteria telling me what they loved about school. So you want to know what the inspiration is today. Um, I love all the big names, but let me tell you, today's seventh and eighth graders I find pretty inspiring too. Yeah, it's, it's certainly, I, I, I sh echo and share that experience having recently just, you know, got back out on the road and, and been in schools where you can feel that energy and the inspiration and the wonderment you see in students uh, as they learn things for the first time, as they explore and, and, and move themselves. And of course, middle school, I think we could probably, Doug, going back to your report card, I think we could probably say that of most sixth graders, which is, is not living up to potential. That's just what middle schoolers are. As great as they are, we know they are, they are in that young adolescent phase and, and they will grow out of that and they will certainly uh, move into young adulthood. Uh, but, but you're right. The, the, the learners that we see, the, the energy they bring to the schools is 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 definitely uh, so inspiring. Okay, one last question as we finish up here, part one. And it's the question I ask everyone that comes on the podcast. And the, it's very simple. You can take this wherever you wish. Uh, but the question is, educationally speaking, what keeps you up at night? Um, I, am, I am desperately worried that our country still does not value uh, and, I'm, and I realize we have an international audience. I'm speaking more of the U.S. in that perspective, but we don't value children. Um, we talk a good game about it, but uh, there's still incredibly, to me, uh, controversy over whether or not we, th we should invest in early childhood education. We certainly don't believe in it strongly enough to ever have it show up on accountability reports. Um, and so what keeps me up at night is a society that talks a good game about uh, valuing the future, but we undervalue children. And and one of the clearest indications of that is what you see right now with teacher turnover. We don't value educators in ways that successful uh, countries do. Uh, it's not just about the pay, by the way, that's important. You can't have six-figure debt and a five-figure income. But we also don't evaluate, we, we don't um, treasure our, our teachers by way of professional respect, autonomy, and safety 
all manner of ways that we show uh, appreciation for other professionals we don't. So that that absolutely keeps me up at night. Part two of my interview with Doug Reeves will be next week, where we shift the topic to leadership. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to talk a little bit about feedback. Now, I know I've done this before, and and to, but to be honest, we could probably talk about feedback every week. The research on feedback is quite robust, but it's actually quite complex and quite nuanced. So we could probably just do, this could be Feedback Corner if you wanted it to be. It's not as simple, feedback is not as simple as it often gets talked about on social media. The academic research makes it crystal clear that feedback is how we improve student achievement. We need to, of course, gather evidence of student learning in order to provide that feedback, and that, of course, is assessing with the formative purpose in mind. Okay, so I was recently reading an article this week by Gordon Stobart, and I really loved the way he opened the article. It was so simple and yet quite profound and, and really got me thinking. I'll put a link in the show notes to the article. It's actually a, a chapter, I should say, in a handbook about feedback. But here's how Stobart opened the article. Two learners are given feedback. They're both told, you're wrong. The first is a novice for whom this feedback is unhelpful, right? How is it wrong? And it's demotivating. I'm clearly no good at this. Now, the second student is an expert who takes the feedback as a challenge and draws on self-regulation skills to energetically review the processes involved to see if this was actually the case, to see if they're actually wrong. So this, Stobart writes, this is a stark illustration that feedback has to be carefully related to the proficiency of the learner and cannot be treated as a generic template to be applied mechanically. So Stobart writes, of course, that when we're thinking about feedback, we have to consider where the learners are along their proficiency continuums and adjust our feedback accordingly so that we maximize its potential impact. And so in the chapter, in the article, he goes through and talks about sort of the five stages of a learner and some of the ideas that we can use to provide feedback at those stages. And it begins with novice learners, right? And Stobart says novice learners um, are really not asked to take any responsibility for anything other than following the rules or following directions and focusing on completing a task. Now, this is an important point here because when you're very much at the beginning stages of learning, you're not really thinking like an expert. It's Daniel Willingham who talks about, you know, expert scientists did not think like experts in training when they started out. They thought like novices. So novices think like novices, right? So our feedback for someone who's very much at the beginning stages of understanding is going to be quite fundamental. It's often going to be binary feedback. Was it right? Was it wrong? It's fairly straightforward. It's fairly foundational. There isn't a lot of thinking involved. It's making sure that they have those foundational pieces. So that's a novice learner. Now, Stobart calls, calls the next phase the advanced beginners, right? And he says that the focus here is on completing increasingly complex tasks. So the reference he uses here is that the barista in training need not know the history of coffee. The task here is to make the cup of coffee that's been ordered, right? So this is where we might start to see mixed level feedback, a mixed level model of feedback. You're still going to be providing corrective task feedback, but now we think about how the feedback is used as a means to guide choices. So this is where we could start to introduce feedback as questions, right? What kind of problem is this? So if there's an incorrect response or an incorrect strategy, we might say, well, let's let's think about what kind of problem is this or what's the right strategy or or what would be another way to approach this, 
right? So we're guiding some choices as they have some familiarity with the material. The third stage is being a competent learner. Ms. Dobart writes that these are learners operating with more complex tasks and situations that require many rules and guidelines that have to be organized into a conceptual model. The key here, he says, is that the learner is now the one devising the plan. The learner is now devising the perspective or determining the perspective, I should say, the perspective to adopt. Because now this is where the learner is going to have to take responsibility for their choices and their subsequent action. This is where risk-taking comes in, as it's no longer about the clinical application of the rules. Students are making choices, and now as they start to make decisions about their pursuits going forward, or the strategies they're choosing, or the way they might approach things, or their interpretation of different pieces of evidence, or whatever it might be, these choices start to become more emotionally charged as we think about the tasks at hand. As Monique Bocarts writes, she says... Students make choices as they appraise the cognitive and emotional demands of a task and respond along one of two pathways, the growth or the well-being pathway. The growth pathway involves learners seeking to increase their competence, while the well-being pathway is used to protect the learners from negative feelings of incompetence or anxiety by using avoidance and denial. So these competent learners want to improve but they're also becoming acutely aware of the emotional side of negative feedback, the negative results as well. Before, they were just following the rules. You know, if they were a novice or an advanced beginner, uh, they were just following rules, guidelines, procedures, directions that they didn't really create, didn't have any responsibility for. But now as they gain in competence, right, as we start to release some of that responsibility to our students, we have to remind ourselves that they are going to become more emotionally invested in those decisions and when things go sideways, there may be uh, more of an emotional reaction from our students. So we have to make sure that we are criterion referenced in our feedback here, and that our feedback focuses more on the long-term learning versus just the immediate task. It's not that the immediate task isn't relevant, it's just that we should probably prioritize and emphasize the long-term development of our students. Now, the fourth phase of the learner Stobart identifies is now the proficient learner. So he makes a distinction between being competent and being proficient. You know, through this, and Stobart writes, through multiple examples and situations, students now develop a conceptual framework around their whole skill set. Now, to put that simply, students now see themselves not just as students of history or students of science, they see themselves as historians or scientists. They think like that, they act like that. That's kind of the mindset. The feedback here for the proficient learner is typically self-initiated. So we engineer opportunities for self-assessment and peer assessment, right? Now, when the feedback is from others, it's often more nuanced and contextualized. So when you have highly proficient students and you think about where they are, our feedback is often very focused. Proficient learners typically understand the big picture. Uh, the feedback that we provide or the feedback that they're receiving from, from the outside is usually situational. So here we could, at this stage, when you recognize that students have a level of proficiency, we could ask the students in advance, you know, what specifically do you want me to look at or to examine? Or what do you specifically want feedback on? Uh, because again, that that emotionally charged aspect and the idea that 
you know, students may interpret or more importantly, misinterpret, um, you know, where the feedback is coming from or, or just maybe see it as a, as a bit of a critique, right? So we fade a little bit out of the picture. We're, of course, never gone, but we create the opportunities uh, for self-monitoring, right? So here, here we also make the case for, uh, you know, delayed feedback because if we're trying to engineer opportunities for self-reflection and self-assessment, um, we might even do this at, at, the, at the competent phase, but delaying feedback for the competent or the proficient learner allows the space for that self-assessment or that peer assessment situation. The fifth phase, of course, Stobart identifies is the expert, right? And this is the contrast he, he painted at the beginning of the, the chapter. Um, he talks about the idea that, that this is the level where there's expertise, and where action is automatic, and there's really no need for guidelines or rules because people who are experts, they act intuitively. And it takes years to become an expert. We know that, right? We're, no, we're probably not reaching any type of expertise until the uh, upper grade levels of high school. And, and it's one of the reasons I don't love when we talk, just to go on a tangent here, it's one of the reasons I don't love the, the term mastery when we talk about proficiency levels. Uh, when we talk about, you know, when you talk about standards-based grading or, or rubrics, I don't love that descriptor of mastery because it takes years to, to, to develop mastery with something. But anyway, so the expert. The feedback at the expert level is almost always self-initiated through self-monitoring, right? There's a potential downside uh, of being an expert, and, and that is that we're not always open to feedback. And, and, and feedback may not always be welcome, right? Feedback is often just seen as a critique at this level. Now, from my perspective, what really matters is who's giving the feedback, and is there a predetermined agreement about the focus on the feedback, right? So are we, um, is, is there a level of expertise in the, the person who's providing the feedback? And I think if the expert has a level of respect for the person providing the feedback, uh, then, then they're a little bit more open to it, right? I think again, the professional sports comparison is really important here. That when you know high-level athletes have a coach that they respect and know that knows what they're talking about, then they're op more open to the feedback from that coach. But if they don't respect the coach and they don't feel like the coach has the breadth and depth of understanding, they're probably not open to the feedback. And and so, who's giving the feedback can also matter a lot. So again, just to kind of recap these ideas. When you have somebody's at the novice level, you're going to give very direct feedback. It's probably going to be very binary. It's going to be right, wrong, yes, no, can, can't. They've got it. Now, as they're starting to become familiar with the material and they start to move into that sort of advanced beginner stage that Stobart talks about, our feedback is about helping them make choices. We're helping guide their choices. So there'll be some parameter, but we're trying to help them understand through questions and, and different ways that we can engineer those opportunities. A student then becomes competent. Right? So they're still making choices, but now the choices are about the approach, and we have to help them uh, navigate through some of the emotional aspects of that, because as they gain competence, you're probably going to see more emotional investment in the learning because they're starting to make choices for themselves, because they're responsible for the results and responsible for the decision. So here, again, is where we support risk-taking. Now, again, as they grow into proficiency, where they're starting to to show a real breadth of, of proficiency with the learning, we're going to engineer more opportunities for self-initiated feedback and probably talk about specificity around what we're going to focus on. And as they become experts, 
right? This is where there's a more finite negotiation in advance to focus on feedback and, and that feedback may be outsourced or it may be that the teacher is engineering the opportunities uh, for students to reflect. So I'll sort of leave you with this last message and, and close with a couple of comments here, but this is the main message that Stobart concludes with in the chapter. He writes, the main message about feedback from the expertise literature is that we need to see feedback in broader terms than the current restrictive cybernetic model, that we should recognize that learners are receiving far more feedback than the well-timed and informative feedback of the educational model. The environment and those in it are continuously sending feedback messages, and learners are seeing these through their own emotional lenses. So we should ask ourselves, are our feedback practices and routines adaptable to where learners are along their continuums, right? That's definitely challenging as, of course, in any class, you're going to have learners at all phases of learning. Uh, maybe not all five, you may not have many experts, but certainly at least four of them. But it is critical that we understand where our learners are so we can finesse our feedback routines. So when you think about it, we, we probably will have very few truly novice learners, especially after initial instruction, you're, you're going to have very few novice learners. And you're probably going to have very few, if any, experts in your classroom as well. So what we're really talking about here are those three middle phases for the majority of the time. Do I have students at the advanced beginner stage, which is where I'm going to be guiding their choices through finite questions and very focused opportunities? Once they develop a level of competence, I start to engineer opportunities for self-assessment and, and, and peer assessment, those kind of self-directed feedback routines where I'm not necessarily taking a back seat, but I am pausing or delaying feedback so that students have the opportunity to reflect. And then as they gain proficiency, and as you know they really understand what they're doing, you can start to negotiate the feedback to say, you know, what do you want me to look for? We'll do, you know, maybe some more finite critiques and we'll, we'll focus in on, you know, are there some specific areas that you really want me to pay attention to to give you feedback on? So again, a little bit more responsibility for guiding their routine. So I think the big message here, of course, is, is something that's not brand new, but it's something to think about. The, the main message here is, first, make sure we understand that our feedback needs to be targeted to where the learner is along their continuum and we make adjustments. And that can be challenging for sure, but it's no less important. And two, keeping in mind that emotional side of feedback, especially as students gain levels of expertise, as they grow, grow through competence and proficiency, and they start taking more responsibility for their learning, there is going to be an emotional investment. There's going to be more of an emotional investment. And that feedback is not just this clinical exercise in delivering information, but understanding that whatever we tell our students or whatever opportunities we create, there is going to be an emotional response and being mindful of that in how we engineer these opportunities, which is why some of that predetermined negotiation can happen ahead of time to say, what do you want me to look for? You know, what are you, what are you open to? Those types of questions and conversations. They don't need to be hour-long conversations, but they need to be conversations that can guide the students to really helping us understand what it is they want us to focus on. And that comes as they gain levels of proficiency and gain that foundational piece. Once you know that they know and now we're refining, we can begin to have those conversations about what we're going to focus our feedback on. That's it for this week. Remember to follow the podcast on Twitter for updates. That handle is at Tom Shimmer Pod. You can also follow me on Twitter at Tom Shimmer. 
Shimmer Education on Facebook at Tom Shimmer Podcast on Instagram and Tom Shimmer Podcast on YouTube. Also, please email your questions for Assessment Corner or any suggestions you have to tomshimmerpod at gmail.com. Next week will be part two of my conversation with Doug Reeves as we shift the topic to leadership. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course. And as I always say, if you like the podcast, please spread the word about the podcast to your friends and colleagues. I would greatly appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.